The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 12. And then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pixah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eric, for reading that passage from the end of Deuteronomy as we are wrapping up this series on the life of Moses. So much more that we could have said if we'd given this more time, but uh, here we are in this part of the, uh, the story, the death of Moses. Before I dive into this, I, want to do, I do want to mention a couple of things. The first is um, giving. We, we don't pass an offering plate here, um, but uh, you can go to christpres.org slash give in order to give to the work that is happening here. If this is your church home, uh, we, we would really appreciate that. And also, uh, there are black books on the aisle, if you wouldn't mind filling those out passing them down. If you haven't done that already, if you haven't registered your attendance already, that helps us uh, to be able to know who's here and know how to follow up with people and care for you well. So so here we are at the end of, of this passage. I was thinking about this this week as we were preparing, and um, it made me think of uh, December 27th, two days after Christmas, 1994. I was a senior in college, and I was standing in my dad's office. He was a computer programmer, and I had um, a detective's fingerprint dust all over my hands because 
it, and on my sleeves, on my shirt, because it was, it, was, it was everywhere. Uh, we were there, my dad and I, because we were sorting through the wreckage of what burglars had left in my dad's office. His office was this old schoolhouse at the end of our road, this one-room schoolhouse that my grandfather actually attended as a child. And my dad was a computer programmer, so his business was basically just an office with a bunch of old machinery, and um, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of value there, but it, it didn't stop the burglars from you know, breaking open the safe and, and turning things over and making a real mess of the place. And I remember being with my dad and just kind of talking about how unsettling it was to find your world just kind of violated like this, to find your world just turned upside down. While we were talking about that, we got a phone call and it was the hospital where, that had a nursing home wing where my grandfather now lived at the time. And they were basically calling to tell us and to tell my dad that my grandfather wasn't doing well and that he should probably head on over. And so dad left for the hospital and I, I told him I'm gonna run back home and clean up for work because I had to go to work and then I would meet him there on my way to work. When I, when I walked into my grandfather's hospital room, he was, he was there lying very still. And my dad was at his side and he had tears in his eyes. And he said to me, he said, he just left us. And he said, I was here, I was here when it happened. And I won't ever forget that moment because, um, one, I was seeing my dad grief stricken in a way that I couldn't remember seeing but he also had this serenity about him at the same time. And, and I remember kind of being aware of what I felt personally myself in the moment. And, and what I felt in the moment was I felt strong. I felt like a man. I was 21 years old. And I'm standing there, and, and I don't say that as a boast, but because what I mean is, it hit me that there in the room, in that room, were three generations of Ramses. Three generations of Ramsey men, a grandfather, a father, and a son. And unless my brother and I would go on to have sons of our own, it would be the last time that three generations of Ramsey men would ever be together in a room. And it didn't feel to me that what we had lost that day was the older generation. It felt like what we lost was the younger generation. Because there with grandpa dead, my dad and I took a step forward, each of us, to where he was now, the old person in the generational line, and I took a step forward, and I was in the middle. Have you ever had an experience like this, where you, 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 you just, it, you're, you're, you have to take a step forward into a new chapter? It presents itself to you, and there's nothing for it. You just have to do it, 
because what used to be is not there anymore. And you know, there's just no going back. It happens in our lives, right? In college, you leave the nest and you know that you can never return to it in the same way that you had it before. You can go home, but it's not the same. In marriage, you take vows that you will bind yourself to another for as long as you both shall live, long before you grasp what that really will require of you and of the other person. In parenthood, we have these little lives that just depend on you for everything, you know? I remember when we used to take family vacations to the beach, we would feel like kind of our, our role as parents was to just keep everybody alive. <laughs> and, and you just couldn't take your eye off of anybody ever. Maybe you have thresholds in your life right now where you feel like you're crossing them, where some, some system, some framework that you've been comfortable in for a long time is just is being un, undone, is being overturned. What are they for you? Our passage is a passage about that. It's a passage about a change happening where everybody now is going to take a step forward into something new, into something that they hadn't been quite in in the same way before. And it's a beautiful passage because it gives us the story of the end of Moses' life, which was a complicated thing. And I'm going to unpack that. That's what we're going to use our time to do together. But I want you to keep in the front of your mind a little detail that's not little at all in the passage, and that is that detail that we get in this text that that God buried Moses somewhere where nobody knew. That even though he didn't enter the promised land, his last moments were like his moments on Sinai, were like his moments where the passage that we even talked about last week that said Moses interacted with God as a man interacts with a friend, that this continues in some way. Even though God's disciplining hand is on Moses and he's not able to enter the promised land with his people, God is with him at the end as the rest of Israel takes a step forward in the line. So Deuteronomy ends, this passage that we read, with Joshua preparing at long last to lead Israel into the promised land. They've been on this 40-year wilderness wandering after leaving Egypt, having been enslaved there for generations. And there Joshua stands, he's on the east banks of the Jordan, and the promised land is spreading out in front of him, as far as he can see. And behind Joshua are the camps of Israel, Abraham's descendants, the children of the slaves of Egypt. Because one of the things that happened in the wilderness wandering is the generation that left Egypt all died. That was part of the reason for the 40 years, was they didn't trust the Lord, and the Lord said, this generation is not the generation that will inherit the land. Only Joshua and Caleb were a part of that. Behind them, behind the camps of Israel, in the crags of the hills of Moab, in a place God only knows, lay the body of Moses, the only leader they had ever known.
And with Moses leading these last 40 years, God led them. He led them in a pillar of cloud by day to keep them cool and protected from the heat of the desert sun and a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm and safe. And he fed them. He fed them manna from heaven. It just came down like a mother bird feeding her young. And he brought them water from a rock. And that water from a rock is really at the heart of this story. Because of the manna and because of the water and because of the pillar of cloud and because of the pillar of fire and the Red Sea parting, the people of Israel, many of them, saw Moses as their hero. But toward the end, Moses knew he wasn't their hero. And he didn't have to look any further than that rock to know it, to remember who he really was. And who he really was was this. He was a stubborn, fragile man who had been well-loved and had been kept and had been used by God, even though he had failed countless times. For all his greatness, the people of Israel from the day Moses was sent by God to lead them out of Egypt, they just complained about him. They wore him out. They complained about him, and he got angry about it, and he complained to God about it, and he complained to them about it. Because it wasn't so much that Moses was a bad leader. It was that to be led, you have to leave where you've been, and we grow fond of where we've been, even if our hearts and our futures would be enslaved if we stayed. And so for every move that Moses made to lead these people to freedom, they found something that they left behind to complain about and to lament. And in the desert, they had nothing to drink and they grumbled that they would have given anything for the grapes and the pomegranates and the figs of Egypt. Isn't it funny how when they start to remember Egypt, they remember it for the things that were pleasant there, even though their existence was as slaves under the thumb of a pharaoh that was intent on breaking their spirit. What they're remembering is pomegranates and figs and grapes. And they were so fixated on them that they said to Moses, why did you bring us here out of Egypt to this evil place? Numbers 20, chapter 5, that's where they say that. Why did you bring us out to this evil place? This was the kind of stuff they dropped in Moses' lap routinely. And Moses took their thankless complaint to the Lord and said, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, take your staff to a rock in the camp and there in the presence of the people, tell the rock to yield water and it will. One of the things I love about this 
is that they want grape and pomegranate juice. And God essentially tells them, if parents, as parents have done down through the ages, you may have water. But at that point, Moses had had enough. So he gathered the people of Israel, chewed them out for their rebellious hearts, walked over to the rock, raised his staff, and struck it. And he struck it in anger before them. And water poured out. Can you see it? Can you see the water pouring out of the rock? May I submit to you, you're nowhere close. Because here's what you need to see. You need to see a volume of water enough to satisfy hundreds of thousands of people and their livestock. If your image in your mind is a trickle of a stream or even like a fire hydrant with its valve open, you're getting warmer. But this was a water supply that nourished hundreds of thousands of people and animals. And Moses struck this rock when only speaking was needed. And that act betrayed his anger not only toward the people but toward God because that rock represented God. I have done this. I have lashed out in anger and frustration that I feel toward others and aimed that anger and frustration at God. I bet you have too. Leadership isn't for the faint of heart. It's often a really lonely role. It can be. And people work hard to make sure that it's not that way. We form committees and HR teams to acquire leaders. And then we complain about the leaders when they do the very thing they were hired to do. When a leader says, let's go this way, it's going to be to the exclusion of going that way. And there will always people who will want to go that way instead of this way. And then they'll talk about it. And they'll say things like, I'm baffled by why they would do it. They use words like baffled or I'm really concerned or I'm, I'm just disappointed, you know. And they'll go on record as those who think you as a leader are a fool. And the best and the worst part of that is a lot of times they're right. And Moses was a fool to strike that rock. He was a fool to do it. All he had to do was speak to it, but he hid it. And God disciplined him. And God's discipline in Moses' life was very somber. It was, Moses, I called you to lead these people out of Egypt, out of their land of slavery, and into the promised land, and you've led them out of Egypt, and you've led them out of their slavery, and you've led them into the wilderness, and I fed you, and I've given you water, and I've given you shelter and protection, and I've given you my law. But you're not going to go into the promised land. They will, but you won't get to do that. Moses, who God called to lead them, who'd led them across the dry ground that only moments before had been the Red Sea, the man who carried down from Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments that God had etched with his own finger would not see the journey to its end. And it's a sad reality. But though it's a sad reality, 
In it lies a glorious truth for those who would lead others, and that's this, that Moses wasn't essential to God doing what he had set out to do, that Moses wasn't the hero of Israel's story. In fact, his lifespan was a part of it, but it was only a part of it, and it was, in in the grand scheme of things, it was a small part of the story that he was actually living. He was a player in the story of a promise of redemption that God made hundreds of years before Moses was ever born and before Moses came on the scene. And God was leading Israel to a, land that, to, to a land that God swore to give to their forefathers, to the generations before. Neither Moses, nor Joshua, nor you, nor I are essential for God to be faithful to keep his promises. And there's great freedom in that because it means that that burden The burden of the faithfulness of God is not ours to uphold. It's his. And yet we find, like Moses, that God is a God of means who is pleased to use us. And he's pleased to use others to bring people to himself. So it's this high honor and it's also this glorious ministry that God would use you or I to draw others into a relationship with him, that God would use you or I to help other people know him and walk with him and understand him. He doesn't need to do that, and yet he does, and it's beautiful, and it's out of his love. And so even when we look at people like Moses and Joshua, we see that God's purpose with them was about so much more than just entering the promised land. It was about God pushing back the effects of the fall. It was about him redeeming what is broken and what is lost. And it's about doing that through one who would be greater than Moses, of whom Hebrews would say, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has honor than the house itself. What Moses was building was going to be summarized in the glory and the mission of Christ himself. And this is the way of scripture. You study any Old Testament figure or New Testament for that matter, except for Jesus, and here's what you're going to find. You're gonna find that they're all as broken as you are. Abraham lied about his wife being his sister to save his own skin, even though it meant she was likely violated. Moses struck the rock in anger as though he was striking God. David had this, we can call it an affair, but it was more of a rape with Bathsheba, and then had her husband killed. Simon Peter denied knowing Jesus as he was going to his cross, the Apostle Paul was seeking ways to have Christians put to death. When you look at the list of people that God uses, they're as broken as you are, they're as broken as I am. And what we see from that is that means we're not the heroes of the story that God is writing. Christ is the hero. He's the hero of scripture. And part of his redeeming work is that he uses the lives of the faithless and the fearful, of both the young and the old, to bring healing and grace to the hurting and to the broken. God's call on the lives of his people is not to emulate the heroes of scripture. God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. He's calling us to himself. 
And so my prayer for us is that he would work through our church family as he worked through people like Moses and as he worked through people like Joshua and so many others, that he would use us to lead people to him, to bring people to him, but free from the burden of having to be the hero of that story or the one who brings any lasting change. The Lord alone does that. It's been about, I want to say, eight months since I stood in a hospital room with my dad as he died. And another wave of that same feeling of a generation taking a step forward happened. I have sons now, too, and three daughters. No grandkids yet. But when I look at what the Lord has done from the time I was a 21-year-old standing there with my father and my grandfather to the time I was standing with just my father and my mother in November. I see the faithfulness of the Lord. And I see the Lord working oftentimes in, in, in spite of weakness and in spite of short-sightedness. And I see the Lord doing good things over time. And this is who he is. This is who he is. So I want to flesh out, I want to close by fleshing out the scene from the text. And it's going to be very brief. Forty years has happened. Forty years has passed. Forty years of triumph, of failure, of manna and water, of Moses going up to receive the tablets of God's law while the people on the ground build a golden calf and say to it that that's what brought them out of Egypt. And the Lord showing mercy instead of consuming them with wrath. You have countless people being buried in the desert sand as a generation dies off and countless others being born. And now they come to Moab where all that separates them from the promised land is a river. And though Moses wouldn't lead the people in, the Lord took him alone up to the top of Mount Nebo and he showed it to him. He gave him the view. I climb mountains, like not with ropes and harnesses. I don't climb the kind of mountains you would die if you fell off of. But I climb mountains that you can walk to the top of. And I'm going to do that later this summer with my daughter Margaret. And there's nothing like standing on the top of a mountain and looking and just seeing forever. And that's what God does with Moses. He takes him up to Mount Nebo and he shows him the land. He says, it's all the way over there to all the way over there and then past the horizon further than you can see. And then the text gives us this detail about the condition Moses was in. He was 120. And it says that his eye was undimmed. I put on my first pair of reading glasses at the age of 40 like clockwork, folks. You probably will too if you're not there yet. The fact that Moses' eyes were undimmed at 120 is because God preserved his vision, and I believe he preserved his vision for this, so that he would see with impeccable clarity 
the beauty of the end of the journey that was Moses's. What a picture. When we see something so intimate, it's hard to express it. Moses was buried by God in the valley of Moab in a place no one ever found. He gave his servant rest. He laid him to rest. And it's such an intimate detail in scripture. It's, 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 it almost takes my breath away to even think about it. What was happening there? And we know he didn't enter because the Lord was disciplining him. But it sure doesn't it seem to you, because it does to me, that God was doing him one better. So he's saying, I'm going to show it to you but then I'm going to bring you home. God called Moses to the place he's ultimately called his people long before and ever since. He called him to himself. And this is the trajectory of what it means to believe in Jesus, that this is ultimately where this is all going, is into the presence of the one who made you and knows you and loves you. And it's where he's calling you to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story of the end of Moses' life because it shows us that you are merciful even in your discipline, that you disciplined Moses for his anger and for his failing as a leader to model humility before you. And yet you didn't reject him. Instead, even as he is receiving the discipline that comes from your hand of not being able to enter the promised land, he is receiving it in such a way that the alternative is instead he's entering your presence forever. And so even in your discipline, there is abounding grace and mercy. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that this is consistent with who you are. And Father, we ask that even as we've looked at the story of the life of Moses, which is a life of struggling to get free from the things that enslave and wandering and wondering about provision, basic provision, things that we wrestle with in our own lives in various ways, that we would remember that you were faithful to lead your people where you said you would and that you were faithful to keep Moses as your own. And we thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.